I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Two quick things before we study this morning. First of all, I appreciate so very much your presence, but I also appreciate uh, more than you will ever know, Izzy, for leading us in those wonderful songs and for that song selection. You may not know it, but our song leaders uh, always get to the the full script of my lessons before they uh, have to select their their songs. And um, Izzy just did such a wonderful job in in selecting something that's very germane to, to the topic of our study this morning and in fact, I'm sitting there thinking that our sermon's already been preached just by, by those wonderful gospel songs that we sang. Also, let me let you know that this is Fundamental Sunday, the first Sunday morning of each month. We try to spend some time in talking about a very rudimentary issue, whether it has to do with the nature of the church, what to do to become a Christian, those kinds of things. And uh, I've been doing that for quite some years now. But I'm letting you know that because I know that we have some new students in since we've last had Fundamental Sunday, and I know that there are others who are joining us online who perhaps are not familiar with, uh, with this practice, but uh, I do that for two reasons. Number one, to make sure that we're always spending at least some time during the course of the year on fundamental matters. I don't want anybody to leave the university church and someone ask them the question, when was the last time you heard a sermon about the necessity of baptism and, and them respond, I can't remember the last time I heard a sermon on that. Uh, we, we need to talk about these issues and we need to preach on them and think on them so that we do not uh, neglect them. But also to let our members know when would be a good time to invite a friend or a visitor uh, and know that we're going to be talking about something that would be very relevant, hopefully, to their interest and certainly to their lives. The title of this morning's lesson is Dead Man Walking. And if you saw that on the bulletin and you thought, I've never, ever heard a sermon called Dead Man Walking. Join the club. I've never preached a sermon called Dead Man Walking. But according to Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, the phrase Dead Man Walking, at one time in the history of this nation, was commonly used in American prisons to designate a person who was condemned to death by capital punishment. Prior to the 1960s, this practice was quite common, when guards would lead a condemned man down the prison hallways on the way to be executed, and they would cry out, dead man walking. And that cry reminded and warned everyone, and by everyone I mean all those prisoners that were within earshot of the ultimate cost of the most vicious crimes. The meaning of that phrase was that the condemned prisoner, in the eyes of the law, was already dead. He was as good as dead. Now that may seem like a strange thought to start a lesson with, but I'm suggesting that we take that thought for a moment and drop that into the spiritual dimension. I want to suggest for your consideration for just a few minutes this morning that spiritually speaking, dead man walking really describes Christians. It describes every child of God who by faith knows That the old man of sin has been crucified with Christ. I know that because the Bible tells me so. Listen to Romans 6, verse 6, if you will. By the way, if you haven't read the entirety of that sixth chapter of Romans, I would suggest that you do that uh, this afternoon at your earliest convenience. Here's what verse 6 says in the midst of that spiritual definition and description of what baptism does for someone who is desiring to to have the blood of Jesus Christ cover their sins. Verse 6 says, knowing this, 
that the old man, that is in context, we know that the old man is talking about the old man of sin, that the old man was crucified with him, that is with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. If you want spiritual emancipation, if you want to be liberated from the domination and the bondage of sin in your life, there's only one way to do it, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. So Christians are, are to count ourselves in that spiritual sense as, as executed to our old life of sin. Look down at verse 11, if you still have your Bible open to that, to that opening. Verse 11 of Romans 6, likewise, Paul says, you also count yourselves to be dead Indeed to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus our Lord. Lest you began to think these are very morbid thoughts. While we're concentrating for a moment on the death situation, he then immediately turns the coin over and says, look at the other side though. While we are dead to sin, that also at the very same moment means that we are now alive to Christ Jesus our Lord. And folks, I'm telling you, ain't that good news. There's no way that you can read these passages without having your faith bolstered and your deep gratitude for what we have just commemorated to be enhanced, our, our appreciation for what Christ has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. Now, I realize that the world looks at this as a mystery, as a conundrum, in fact, maybe even as an absurdity. The world of sin... To the unbelieving world, the, the very idea that God's people are now living new lives that, that are dead somehow to sin and to Satan, they don't understand that. It's, it's impossible to wrap a worldly mind around that concept. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 4 verse 4 that they, by that contextually he means those who are in the world, think it strange that you, that's Christians, do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. That may not help you a whole lot, but I looked at that word dissipation in a couple of other translations, and one of them indicates that means wild and wasteful living. So they don't understand why you don't do the same things you used to do, that you don't go with them to the places that you used to go before you became a Christian. They don't understand the language that you now use and the language that you refuse to use. And then it says at the very end of verse 4, speaking evil of you. So unknown to the world, when they speak evil of those who are in this spiritual sense, dead men walking, they've actually paid us a great compliment because they see the distinction. They're able to see the difference in, in your lifestyle and their lifestyle. Again, in your way of thinking and even in your word choice. They're able to see that distinction because they have seen us as different. And folks, that's a good thing. When the church becomes un undistinguishable, when they cannot see a difference between God's people and the world, that's when we're in deep trouble. And so Peter reminds us that while the world may not understand that, that the longer you spend in the kingdom of Christ, the longer you live as a child of God, the more deeply you will come to appreciate the fact that God's people are really dead men walking, that we are dead to the world of sin, and that we're dead to the wiles of Satan. That is in the sense of every day we're going to be doing our dead level best to resist his temptation, to resist sin in our life. And, and we know that we'll never be able to do that perfectly. Only one person came to this earth and did that perfectly, but, and we're not him. 
But we're going to work on that. We're going to try to grow more like Christ every day of our lives. And while the world doesn't understand that, they still are able to see us as different. Even though they, Peter said, think us strange because we do not practice the same worldly lifestyle. And then he said, speaking evil of you, and you and I both know that it is a universal truth that that which you do not understand, you criticize. So expect criticism. Expect judgment from the world because of the decision that you have made to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to die in the process to sin. Think with me for a moment about the real meaning of the cross. And I wish we could just skip this part and and, and move on to some further thoughts. But I realize that in our culture, and especially increasingly in our world, people do not really understand nor fully appreciate what this cross of Calvary is that we have just sung about this morning. You see, the cross in the Roman, in the days of the Roman Empire, during the earthly life of Jesus, was the most barbaric form of capital punishment ever devised by the evil imagination of men. The cross was designed to bring about the greatest amount of of shame and pain to the criminal that could possibly be experienced. And if you've ever seen a documentary on TV about the nature of and what took place, not only in being nailed to a cross, but what took place and what Jesus experienced before he ever went to the cross, folks, it's difficult to watch. It's grueling. It's gruesome. And yet that is exactly the way the Romans designed crucifixion to be. Those crucified were stripped of all their clothing to accentuate their their shame and embarrassment. And citizens of the Roman Empire, not surprisingly, were the only ones exempt from being crucified. Regardless of the extremity of their crimes. If you're a Roman citizen, you are naturally exempt from ever being crucified. But the powers that be of the Roman Empire were, man, they were more than happy. To crucify any foreigner, and especially one who laid claim to being the king of the Jews. Now in today's world, the real meaning of the cross, I think, has been greatly diluted in the minds of of many people. To us, a cross has merely become a symbol that we wear around our neck, or maybe that we hang off the rearview mirror of our cars that, 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 that symbolizes our faith. And I'm not going to argue with that. Because of what I think of and what is connoted when I see a cross, whether it's on a necklace or some other image of a cross. I I think that there is some legitimacy in that as long as we don't allow that to replace what is most essential and most important in our faith. But sadly, there are some who don't even claim to have any faith at all that wear the cross around their neck. And you wonder what's being communicated there. And even artist renderings of Jesus on the cross are typically not historically accurate. They usually feature Jesus with, you know, with a, and I'm not going to get too graphic here, so don't worry, but they, they feature Jesus with a loincloth to reduce the degree of shame that he actually had to suffer during his crucifixion. Many in the 21st century world tend to think that, that of the cross only as an item of, of jewelry or maybe as a symbol that we use to decorate our church buildings. And, and that is about as deeply and that is about as superficially as they, as they look at the cross. Whenever and wherever I see a cross, I allow it to remind me of Christ's own crucifixion. 
But not only that, in light of our lesson this morning, I also allow it to cause me to think about my co-crucifixion with the Lord Jesus Christ, as in, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But you know, if we keep the original meaning of the Roman crucifixion in mind, I think we can at least began to understand why Peter had that, that mental struggle and spiritual struggle going on in his life. When Jesus first began to predict his suffering and his death, of all the apostles, I think it would be safe to say that Peter struggled with that concept of, of being able to wrap his, his brain and his heart around the idea that the Messiah had actually come to earth. God, in, in earthly form, took upon the form of flesh, and yet, yet he was about to die. He was going to be nailed to a cross, and Peter just could not fathom that. He didn't understand that. In fact, he rejected that out of hand as, as being a possibility. I mean, after all, they had they'd been persuaded over the course of time during their discipleship that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And, 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 and we can, I think, under, understand why Peter reacted the way he did when Jesus began to predict his death. After all, in Peter's mind... And in the mind of the other apostles, how could a dead Messiah sit on David's throne and restore power to Jerusalem and throw off the shackles of Roman domination? You can't do that as a dead man. So again, there was, there was the conundrum. What's going on here? Why is Jesus continually telling us that he's about to die? And over in Matthew chapter 16, will you turn there? Matthew chapter 16, look at a few verses with me. And I'm going to look at verses 21 through 23, and then we're going to spend a little time thinking about those verses, and then we're going to jump down to the next two. But in Matthew 16, verses uh, 21 through 23, and you know how that a few verses earlier is where Jesus came into the borders of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, now, you, you stay in touch with people. You have your finger on the pulse of society. Who do men say that I am? That, that discussion took place, of course, in Matthew 16, just a, a few verses prior to this. But verse 21 through 23, look at that closely. It clearly says, from this time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Let me stop parenthetically and say, I think you will find it true that every time Jesus predicted his death, he also predicted his resurrection. There's always a thread of good news, even in the worst of situations. Verse 22, then Peter took him aside. Here's Peter. You know Peter, don't you? The man who opened his mouth long enough to change feet. Peter was so impetuous. It's not surprising that he's the first one who spoke up. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking the Messiah, the Son of God, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen to you. And I think that probably the best we can say about Peter's interaction with Jesus at this point was that he at least had the best of intentions. He did not want to see Jesus die. And we can only imagine Peter's shock. When the very next verse says, follow along with me, but he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Many today, I think, in their walk of faith tend to overlook the real meaning of the cross. And I pray that Jesus' warning to Peter will also serve as a personal warning To every one of us this morning, under the sound of my voice, to be mindful of the way that Jesus himself 
looked at the cross that he was about to be nailed to, rather than the typical way that most of the world looks at the cross. Folks, there's more to the cross than just what you wear around your neck. There's more to the cross than what is erected on a steeple in a church building in a local community. The cross is so very powerful. Allow me to submit that it is the most powerful thing this world has ever known. And when we sing about the cross, I hope it comes to mean more and more to you as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you'll come to appreciate in a deeper way how that Jesus hung on that cross because of no sins of his own, but because of our sins. Now, let's think for a moment about what the cross means in very practical terms. Immediately after rebuking Peter that, uh, for, for denying that Jesus must die, Jesus then made application of that death to those who would be his followers. Even in coming generations, that gets us. Look at verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 16. If anyone desires to come after me. These are the words of the Lord himself. If anyone desires to come after me, let him. Notice the three-step process. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I'm not suggesting that all the disciples who heard that statement fully understood everything that Jesus meant by that. I think that there are probably 2,000 years later people who are still puzzled. It can be a little head-scratcher. What did Jesus mean by all of that? I I want to boil it all down to this one statement, this one premise concept that I think incorporates and encapsulates this verse. Jesus is telling us that those who follow him, even in our day, who imitate Jesus, who try to do what Jesus would do in any given situation, and also who who follow his example in denying themselves, taking up their crosses and following him, those are the ones, those are the kinds of disciples that Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for the fair-weather friend. He's not looking for the fan who will show up on the weekend, pat him on the back and say, we think you're great, and then do what they want to for the rest of the week. He's looking for people who will follow him through the trenches of life who will do what they must do in order to be maintain their faith to him day by day. Those who take these three key steps in their lives, Jesus said they will save their souls eternally. And those who refuse to take these steps will lose their eternal lives. It's that important. So step one, self-denial. Now, that, that doesn't just mean denying ourselves of, of some things that we would really like to have in life. No, it's much deeper than that. Instead, it means, if this is the best way I can describe it, I guess we'll go with this. It means taking ourselves out of the picture totally. It literally means, in light of Romans chapter 6, being willing to die to self. It is no longer what I want. It is no longer my aspirations and ambitions in life that are of the utmost importance. Now what's most important is can I, will I follow Jesus in any walk of life, in any circumstance? So we take ourselves out of the picture completely. And we deny the old man of sin which is buried with Christ in the watery grave of baptism. It's there that we put off that old sinful self and and we're raised as new persons in Christ. And Paul made that abundantly clear in verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 6 when he said, Don't you know that those who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Want to know where we contact the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ? It's in the waters of baptism. 
That's where we contact his blood. We are baptized into his death. Now, the good news is we don't stay there. I, I don't mean to in any way trivialize the importance or the act of baptism. I, I've never wanted to do that. But I will let you know that when I have the great privilege, the wonderful honor of baptizing someone into Christ, especially someone who body language indicates that they're not altogether comfortable standing in that much water. There are some people, did you know that, that have a fear of water. And they need to be baptized too. And, and especially on those occasions, I will tell that person, now here's, I will explain exactly the mechanics of what being baptized, being buried in water is all about. And then I will give them this assurance. I'm here to baptize you and not to drown you. And I have never lost anyone yet. Some people need, some people need that kind of reassurance. But it is there that we contact the death of Jesus Christ. Now, guess what? Then we're raised. That's good news to someone who's being baptized, isn't it? We're not going to keep you under the water. You're then raised to walk in newness of life. Did you get the picture? In the first six verses of Romans 6, Paul is telling us that when someone who wants to be a child of God, who wants to have his or her, her blood or sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, that all of that is symbolized in, in the act of baptism. We are reenacting Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. So we die to sin in repentance, and then we're buried with him in the watery grave of baptism, and then just like Jesus, we're resurrected to walk in a new way of life. And I think that's a wonderful imagery, and I don't think that there's anything accidental about it. I think that's exactly the way the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that chapter. And also, taking up our cross doesn't mean just tolerating some problems that we might have to face in this life. Sometimes we use the terminology that way, don't we? I've known people who thought uh, of the cross they have to carry as maybe having some defect, physical defect that they were born with, that they will have to endure for the rest of their lives. Or, or maybe it's, it's some illness that they've contracted. In fact, during this pandemic, I've heard on more than one occasion people saying, who are spiritually minded at least, well, this is just the cross that we're going to have to bear for a while. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me? I don't think any of those things are what Jesus meant by that statement. That's not, that's not what he was saying. The Christian cross that we bear in following our Lord Jesus represents once again our co-crucifixion with him as we count ourselves as dead men walking. That we are now dead to the old life of sin and that we are freed, emancipated, liberated from the bondage of sin in our lives. And even though the world may never understand that, we come to understand and appreciate it more every day, that we've been liberated by the blood of Jesus Christ from a, the way and the world and the life of sin. And the Christian cross that we bear in following our Lord Jesus Christ represents that, that co-crucifixion. Jesus even said in Luke 9 and verse 23, that this is the cross that we are to pick up daily. In Luke 9, he says, uses the word daily if we want to follow him fully and faithfully. You see, that's not something you just do on Wednesday nights and Sundays. No, we pick up our cross and we follow him every single day. How many days should we follow Jesus? How many days should we deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him faithfully? Every day that has a Y in it. Daily, Jesus said. Every day that we live, 
We're to remind ourselves that we're dead to sin and Satan, but we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Going back to Romans 6 verse 11. Now let me mention very quickly two key words in the gospel message that I think accentuate what we are thinking about and talking about this morning. And the two key words in the gospel message of Christ are death to sin and life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think in a powerful and beautiful way that encapsulates our relationship to God. Because in Ephesians 6 verse 15 is where Paul, after talking about the whole armor of God, makes sure that we understand that we are to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. So Paul is saying in a spiritual sense that every Christian needs to give attention to the kind of shoes we're wearing. And he's not talking about do you prefer New Balances or Nikes. He's talking about spiritually having the right kind of shoes. Talking about in this spiritual sense in which we give attention to our footwear and how and where we walk in our Christian journey. Paul says when you become a child of God, you give attention to every step you take. The direction of those steps. What you're doing when you're doing it. The Christian walk really is that. Every day we take more and more steps that are either either leading us closer to Christ or farther away from him. Be careful, little feet, where you go. We used to sing in our early classes. Now the normal person, Paul says, has two feet. And each and every step we take, Paul says, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive, alive to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. In that well-known and often sung song that we have already sung this morning, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul begins that by saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I really believe that you have to study the Bible for a while to begin to understand what he meant by that. I've been crucified with Christ. Now to the natural mind that makes absolutely no sense. Because we hardly ever execute anyone in this nation anymore. And we don't ever execute anyone by by way of crucifixion but notice that paul made that statement in the past tense he said i have been crucified with christ and that's true because paul's crucifixion with christ watch this carefully this is why we call it fundamental sunday no paul is telling us that his crucifixion with christ began when he was baptized into the death of christ it's at baptism that we too enter into this this crucifixion with christ and, and his death became our death to sin. Christ's eternal life also became our new life of being born of the Spirit. And then he went on to say in that same Galatians 2.20 that comprises our text this morning, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That just means that our co-crucifixion and our co-resurrection with Christ form the very foundation of our Christian faith. How we live our lives in the flesh daily has everything to do with our personal relationship of faith with Christ Jesus. And because he loved us and gave himself for us, we are to show our love for him by devoting our lives of faith to him. We are, in effect, saying, Jesus, you died for me, and now I am willing to die for you. None of us I mean, none of us can afford to live lives of unbelief by refusing to count ourselves crucified with him. I hope you go home with that central message in your heart. Every one of us, if we're children of God this morning, are dead men walking. We're still walking on this planet. We're still taking on and carrying on the affairs of life. 
But we're dead men, Paul said, because we've died to sin. And, and Jesus Christ on the cross made that possible. Let me think for just a moment about where the real power in this world lies, and then we'll be through. Just as faithful Christians began every week, as we've done this morning, by gathering around the table to remind ourselves of how Jesus loved us and how he gave himself for us, so are we to remind ourselves daily of this same basic foundational fact of the gospel. The basic gospel message, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. If there's a three-legged stool that comprises our faith, that's what it is. The death, burial, and resurrection of God's is God's only power. Watch that, church. It is his only power to save any and all who believe his message. Said another way, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation from sin does not exist. There is no other hope. There's no other way to be able to eradicate our lives of sin and its domination, and its guilt, and its eternal consequences, other than the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on that old rugged cross. And that's why the songs we sang this morning mean so very much to the child of God. And that's why when we gather around this table and people say, y'all do that every week? And we say, yes. And we do it with gratitude, because I don't know about you, I need a weekly reminder of the center and circumference of my faith. And that is that Jesus was willing to die, do for me what I could never do for myself. Paul declared in Romans 1, 16 and 17 with that in mind, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, watch this, not a power, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, there may be people who are ashamed of the idea, because I I won't try to to debate the concept that dying on a cross was a shameful experience. It was the most ignominious way to die. It was shameful. It was embarrassing for all the reasons that we've already stipulated this morning. And there are some people that think about, now, can I follow a Christ who's willing to experience that kind of death? And and they're ashamed of the idea that our Savior had to die that terrible death of, of pain and agony and shame, even to rescue us from our sins. But Paul, Paul knew the truth, and he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he was willing to put ink on paper for all all of this world and for the world to come, for everyone to know that I, Paul said, am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to save those who believe. If you ever have any degree, any iota of shame in your life for the way that Jesus died, I hope that you will eradicate that from your mind and from your heart and that you will develop a love and appreciation for what he's done for us. Knowing that that is the only hope that any of us have. Thank God that through the gospel of Jesus' atoning death, that God himself has empowered and given us the ability through his blood to blast the sin out of our lives as well as to destroy the old man of sin. At least that's what Paul said in Romans 6. Now, no wonder that Paul wrote in Galatians 6 verse 14, and we've sung about that this morning too, and I'm grateful. Galatians 6.14 reads like this, But God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Did you get that? 
It is by the blood of Jesus and by his death on the cross that I have died to the world and the world has died to me. Have you heard the rumor that some of the more distinguished refined churches, not only in our nation but around the world, have decided that they are no longer going to sing songs that speak of what they call, this is their terminology now, the barbaric message of blood. So they've taken their songbooks, their hymnals, and every song that refers to blood, the word has been eradicated or has been substituted with some other word that they consider to be more palatable. Now, if that's true, we can't help but wonder what such churches do with verses like Galatians 6.14. Where Paul plainly declares, God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only room that we have to boast. We can't boast and brag on ourselves, folks. The only thing we can boast about is that old rugged cross and the one who hung on it. I tell you, I'd hate to stand in their shoes on the day of judgment, wouldn't you? And to answer for that kind of attitude of unbelief and rejection of the only hope that lost humanity has for this world or for the next world, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me touch on Romans 1.17 briefly, and I promise we'll sing a song of invitation in just a moment. Because it's the key verse in Paul's letter to the Romans. This verse establishes the very theme of what the book of Romans is all about, and that is righteousness by faith. Paul writes in verse 17 of Romans 1, For in it, that is, in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteousness of God, we need to know, is not just an attribute of God like the holiness of God. That's not what he's talking about. The righteousness of God in this verse is the gift of his grace to the saved who are his children. And through the gift of Christ's own perfect righteousness and our acceptance of that by our obedient faith, we are now looked upon through the eyes of God's grace as standing before our God as perfect and righteous in his sight. So it is a conferred righteousness that is being described here. That is, it is not our righteousness that's going to get us to heaven. It is Christ's righteousness that has been conferred to us when we died to the world, when we were dead men walking. And the great gift of God's righteousness can be given by by a God of justice because Jesus was the one who paid the debt. Jesus was willing to take upon himself our sins before he ever went to the cross. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Did you get that? And then he went on to say that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as he said in Romans 1.17, this gift is given to God's children by faith because the just shall live by faith. And then one final passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul made it crystal clear. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That just means that Christian faith produces good works to the glory of God. Not that we can earn or that we have to earn our salvation. That's that's the exact opposite of what Paul is communicating in Ephesians 2. Because no one can earn anything that has to do with our eternal reward. You see, it's not a debt-paying arrangement. It's not a, okay, I'm going to do enough good works and eventually I have my debt paid off. That's, That's not it at all. All that our God asks of his children is that we walk daily in good works as an outer demonstration 
of our great appreciation for his gift of salvation that has been given by grace through faith. So full circle, back to the beginning, prison halls once echoed with the phrase dead man walking. And that phrase served as a warning of the approach of one who was walking to his death either in the electric chair or perhaps on the gallows. The world may now echo that same phrase toward those who have suffered and shared in the barbaric capital punishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. To those of us who are spiritually dead men walking should be able to get to the point in our lives, hopefully early on, where every single one of us can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder, has the blood of Jesus Christ washed your sins away in the waters of baptism? If not, what better time to do it than right now, while we stand, while we sing? Lift up your voice.